Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 3 and 4, the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. Let's stand as we open the Word of God together this morning. And we're beginning this series on why, asking those why questions. Why do we do what we do? Why do we believe what we believe? It's something that if you've been around me for any period of time, you know that question is near and dear to my heart. I love to receive questions from the church family. And so all of this series is not yet in stone. So if you have some tough questions about why we believe what we believe, shoot me an email, give me a phone call and ask those questions because it may be a topic that not only you but many others are asking questions about. And if I don't have answers, we'll do our best together to see if we can find answers uh, from God's Word. But before we start looking at answers from God's word, we need to know why we make a big deal about what the Bible says to begin with. So let's uh, look at these verses. So many places we could have gone this morning, but I love this passage because it is to a young pastor, uh, Paul writing to his protege, his mentor E in the faith about his ministry and his calling. And he says in verse 16, after laying a foundation that that Timothy had in the Word of God. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped, some translations say thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Before God, and and by the way, you realize we went in, mankind went in and put the chapter numbers later, but it would have read like just a regular letter from the beginning. But he says, Before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly charge you, proclaim the message. Preach the word. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. And I'll tell you, that time is here today as much as it ever has been. They will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, keep a clear head about everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, which means preaching the good news, and he says, fulfill your ministry. Father, I pray this morning that I will be obedient to the very text that I'm proclaiming, that your Holy Spirit will empower me and give us all ears to hear. Not only that, but empower us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Give us a heart, a greater heart for your word. Give us a a conviction to stand on it and to not compromise it. Give us courage when the world begins to tell us we can no longer proclaim it or live by it. Help us not to give in to the temptation to water it down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Anyone here have preschoolers in the home that love to ask questions? Raise your hand. Grandchildren, children, you love to be around preschoolers when they're asking these questions. Preschoolers ask a million why questions, sometimes it seems like in a day. And researchers have said that actually the majority of them are not asking questions 
simply to annoy you as we might have thought. They have said that some of them will ask questions in defiance. In other words, they're asking a question because it is a stall tactic or because they don't want to do something. Why do we have to eat our vegetables? Why do I have to take a bath? Why do I have to go to bed? But most of the time, they're asking questions because they legitimately want answers. They are learning, they're absorbing, they're soaking everything in at that stage of life. And so the wrong answer is because I said so. The wrong answer is to lie about it, or the wrong answer is to blow them off. The right response is to answer them as honestly as you know how, giving them the information on their level that they can understand, or to explain to them, we'll get to that question in the future, because sometimes they ask questions that they're not ready to hear the answers to. Or sometimes the best response is to say, we'll research that together. But they love to ask questions. And when we get older, we begin to ponder things. I I wrote down some of those why questions that I've heard over the years or read over the years. Uh, I've even heard comedians share some of these before when it comes to things to ponder because they they be quite humorous at times. Like, why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? Why do fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? Why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? You've all heard that one before. Why is it that when you transport something by a car, it's called a shipment, but when you place it on a ship, it's called cargo? Inquiring minds want to know, right? If the black box on an airplane is indestructible, why can't they make the whole plane out of it? Why do you say the alarm clock goes off when it's really coming on? Why is there an expiration date on sour cream? (laughs) How would you know? Why do we call it a building if it's completed? Shouldn't it be called a built? Is there another word for thesaurus? Now, folks, I had to look that one up. I had to to go on to the online thesaurus and say, is there another word for thesaurus? And the closest thing they could come up to was reference guide. Why don't sheep shrink when it rains? (laughs) Think about it. Why are they called apartments when we stick them all together? Why is it called a near miss when it was really a near hit? And finally, why is abbreviated such a long word? Preschoolers aren't the only ones that ask the question. In the same way, when we come to the Word of God, we get a lot of why questions. Why do we believe this? Why do we act this way? And so many times we want to do like we want to do with our children when people challenge us on our faith. We, we, we want to all of a sudden become Jack Nicholson and a few good men and, and say, you want the truth? And they say, yes. And you say, well, you can't handle the truth. I'm not going to answer that question. We, we kind of feel that way at times. We just do, really don't want to tackle it. But if something is true and credible and important, then it's worth your time. And it's worth your time. What is your life but the accumulation of time? So then it's worth 
your life. Anything that's worth your time then becomes worth your life. Such are the questions that pertain to faith. We want answers. We want the truth. And why do we believe this stuff? Why do we behave this way? Why do we embrace certain convictions and standards and purposes and mission in life? Is it really worth it all in the end anyway? And at the top of the list of questions we have to answer when it comes to why do we believe this way? Why do we embrace these convictions? Why do we stand on this as absolute truth? At the top of the list has to be the question, why do we make such a big deal about the Bible? Because I know what we'll do with all of the other questions that we're going to look at throughout the spring and early summer. I know how we're going to approach those questions. We're going to look at those questions, and we're going to do our best to say, because the Bible says, and we're going to give a biblical, to the best of our ability, we're going to give a biblical answer to the question. But when we say the Bible says, we've made an assumption. The assumption is that we believe the Bible is true, that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and we can build our beliefs on that word. And we're going to see in this process, as I've explained from this pulpit a number of times before, that we will do what we do because we value what we value. And we will value what we value because we believe what we believe. Actions will be based on values and values will be based on Beliefs, And so if we truly believe it, it will change what we value. And if we truly value it, it will change the very way that we behave. 66 books in what we call the Bible. 35 plus authors. Perfect continuity. Genesis to Revelation. One beautiful story of redemption. That there is a God. We have sinned and been separated from him. And the story of Scripture is the story of redemption, of us being drawn back to a loving and redeeming God, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, don't get away from this truth. Don't get away from this message. And and I want you to look at three considerations with me this morning when we answer that question. Why do we make a big deal about the Bible? First of all, I want you to see that it's because of of the divine inspiration of Scripture. The divine inspiration of Scripture. What is the source of Scripture? It, It is Almighty God, whom the atheist would say does not exist, and the agnostic would say, listen, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, so I would say, if he does exist, there's no way to know him. The believer can say, I could not know him unless he reveals himself to us, which he did through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he also did just as objectively through the written word. In fact, if you were to say we can't make a big deal out of the Bible, we should be making a big deal out about Jesus Christ, I would say, well, you're partly right because we should be worshiping Jesus first and foremost, but apart from the Bible, which Jesus are you going to worship? And so we have to have an accurate account of all that Jesus began to say and do, as John would write about. And so Paul tells Timothy, I want you to know something. All Scripture, pos grafe in the Greek, it means all of it, (laughs) in total, 
is inspired. Theopneusis. It's a it's a word that literally means God breathed. It has more to do with expiration than it does with inspiration because it literally says that God breathed out the very words that we're reading. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21, Peter is saying, listen, we now have a more sure word of prophecy. After he had argued that we had walked with Jesus, we experienced Jesus, we touched Jesus, we are eyewitnesses of all these things, we have this more sure word of prophecy, or the, the word of prophecy has been made more sure. And then he goes on to say that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. You can't just make it mean what you want it to mean. You can't just interpret it any way you want to. There's a right and a wrong way. He said because these prophets wrote as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's where we get our theory of inspiration. God breathed. He moved along among those who were writing the Scriptures And while it was the words of man, it was at the same time, supernaturally, the very word of God. God said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and desires that we understand it. And so if it's all Scripture, we can't look at the Bible and just say, you know what, I really love John 3.16, and so I want to talk about the love of God, and I want to talk about heaven, and I believe in heaven because the Bible tells me there's a heaven, and I believe in Jesus because the Bible tells me Jesus was real. And then we get to the passages that describe marriage and sexuality, and we say, oh, but I don't really believe that. That's antiquated. We can't just take part of it. It's an all-or-none deal. So if the Bible's inspired, we have to believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration. It is God breathe. Just as God breathed life into us, and Matthew 4, 4 says we, we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Psalm 40 and verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. James 1, 21 says, therefore, let us lay aside all wickedness or our filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Interestingly, James was talking to Christians there. He wasn't just saying, yes, we need salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the beginning point. But it's God's word that becomes life for us, saving us from the traps of Satan in this world, and sanctifying us, making us more like Christ as we become serious students and doers of the word. God in his word is revealing his character, revealing his nature, and revealing his redemptive plan. The the very mystery of God, the purpose of life, your purpose for being here, the reason the universe exists, it's all right there in scriptures. Is everything in scripture, or, or is everything there is to know about God in scripture? Obviously not. God is a transcendent God. He is infinite. Our mind could not contain all that there is to know about God. But he says, these things have I written, at least John wrote in his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. We have everything we need, Peter says, for life and godliness. So God's revealing himself. Now there's a study known as polemics where we kind of tear down other religions. And we're told we're supposed to tear down the false philosophies of this world. But biblical apologetics comes back and says, but there's a reason that we believe what we believe, and there's 
evidence to stand on it. We can trust the Word of God. It's not just uh, uh, because it's our tradition or our background or we were raised this way, our parents told us so. At some point, we have to believe that it is the absolute eternal truth of God. Remember Vody Bauckham, who was a Christian apologist. He was at, at Southeastern. Our time there overlapped uh, when I was in seminary. But he's just got a brilliant mind when it comes to defending the faith. And in his defense of Scripture, he tells the story of how um, he came home from school one day all upset with his mom. And he said, you told me if I didn't wear my cap that I could catch a cold. His mom said, well, that's right. And he said, but the teacher told me at school that a cold is a virus. And it doesn't matter whether I wear my cap or not, I could still catch a cold from the germs of somebody else, whether I'm wearing my cap or not. And he said, so here all this time I was basing something on, as long as I wore a cap, I wouldn't catch a cold on what my mama had told me. And then I find out that mama wasn't completely right. Things like that cause kids to grow up and and question, well, they told me other things in life that I've kind of found out that they weren't necessarily spot on every time. And then they tell me that the Bible is the Word of God and you're not supposed to question it. We need to give solid answers for those tough questions. Vody Bauckham goes on to tell how he wrestled with this and came to his own conclusions and he says, listen, I can now give a little bit deeper response when somebody says, why do you believe the Bible is true? And to summarize it, and you can look him up or Google him or search him on YouTube, and there's free videos available where he's given a defense, but he summarizes it this way. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. In other words, he was saying there's all the historical evidence in the world that the Bible is authentic and is an eyewitness account of those things that took place. I've personally discovered that you can only kind of destroy that with anti-supernatural presuppositions when you come to the Bible. If you are already determined that there is no God, you've already determined that the miraculous cannot happen, that there's no such thing as supernatural, then you can take a scientific approach and come up with reasons not to believe the Bible. But only if you start with anti-supernatural presuppositions, which to me, good science would lay aside all presuppositions, even those. Most of those critics who reject the Bible don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. Because if the Bible is true, that means I must come to a place in my life where I repent and turn from my sin and trust in Jesus Christ and live my life for him. But because we're so selfish and we want to do what we want to do, we can't believe that that could possibly be the wrong way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end... Thereof leads to death, the Bible says. And so we can't possibly believe that my way would be the wrong way. So I need to come up with a reason to reject God's way and God's revelation. 
During the Enlightenment, the mid-1800s and into the early 1900s, there were over 700 theories from critics who were given to higher criticism of Scripture. Over 600 of those theories and arguments to reject the Word of God have already been self-rejected, refuted. Other discoveries have been made that have caused the skeptic and the cynic, the critic, to not use those arguments anymore. You say, well, that still might leave a hundred arguments, but all of those have to start with anti-supernatural presuppositions. That if you go ahead and rule out the supernatural, then you're going to reject the Bible. What we have are the testimonies of these disciples. You throw in people like Paul, who could stand with any philosopher of his day after his encounter with Jesus. Remember when he saw the light? (laughs) After his encounter with Jesus and his interviews with the disciples, he said, I'm a believer now. We have Luke, a physician, who writes very scholarly saying, I'm giving you an eyewitness account, Theophilus. And so we have a more sure word, as Peter would tell us. We have not only those external or internal witnesses, there's what Dr. Balcom calls an external corroboration. Sixteen historians of the first century all reference Jesus of Nazareth without any contradictions to the biblical account. Because of the divine inspiration of Scripture, that if there is a God, and we know there is, that we could not know him unless he makes himself known. He did that through what we call revelation. He revealed himself. He made himself known to us. Subjectively, the Bible says, even the stars proclaim that there is a God. That we can't look at creation, that we can't look at history, that that we can't observe all that is around us and all the beauty and wonder in the world, and not stop and say, there must be a God. But objectively, he revealed himself through his son, Jesus, the living word, and through the Bible, the written word, to say, I am real, I am here, I am love you, and I am drawing you to myself. The divine inspiration of Scripture. We believe that without apology. Secondly, as Paul's writing to Timothy, We would make a big deal out of the Bible because of the discipleship implications to believers. That if we're going to grow in our walk with God, that we have to understand the place of Scripture in that process. You can't be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, a mathetes, a student and follower of Jesus Christ, without being a student of his word. And so he goes on to say, not only in verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired, he says it is profitable. It's got a role that it's going to play in your spiritual formation, a preeminent role. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be equipped or or complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so what we're embracing here is not pragmatism. Some people do that and they say things that they don't mean to be a stumbling block for people, but they'll say things, so you know what? I believe the Bible because it just, it just works. We need to flip that statement. We, we, we don't need to say, well, 
If it works, it's true. The, the better statement is, if it's true, it will work. So that means the same thing. No, pragmatism says, hey, whatever works for you works for you. Whatever works for me works for me. It leads us into moral relativism. Well, everybody find their own way, and whatever works for you may be true. What we believe is that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, and because it is true, it will work in our lives. It becomes profitable to make us fully devoted disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And so 21st century watered-down versions won't help us in that process. And pastors and teachers and Christian universities are getting further and further away from standing on the Word of God as it is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And in the process, it weakens believers, it weakens churches. I recently heard John MacArthur reflecting on J.I. Packer. Some of you have read his book, Knowing God. And as he was reflecting on Packer's thoughts, Packer was reflecting on a Puritan pastor whose writings have actually influenced me from time to time, Richard Baxter. And and Richard Baxter was talking about the depths and the riches of God's Word and the importance of serious Bible study. Fortunately, he lived in a world where we weren't distracted by uh, TV and entertainment and, and all that's out there today. Everybody wasn't walking around with a cell phone in their hands and that sort of thing. And so he was writing during a time that he was, he was challenging Christians to greater depth and understanding of the Word of God and living it out in their lives and calling them to greater levels of commitment and consecration. And it calls J.I. Packer to say this about the modern evangelical church. Now, quote, the modern evangelical church is egocentric, zany. I had to look that word up. It means eccentric, bizarre, acting strange to get somebody's attention. Simplistic, degenerate, magic spell casting, which is all the culture sees when it watches religious TV or sees the evangelical community. Packer goes on to say, our how-tos, how to have a wonderful family, how to have a great sex life, how to have financial success, in a Christian way, of course, how to cope with grief and life passages, how to cope with crises and fear and frustrating relationships, often give us a formula to be followed by a series of supposedly simple actions on our part in a manner of painting by numbers. In other words, he says, what's happening in most pulpits today is that we're trying to dumb it down, give somebody very simplistic answers to go out and do something that is very practical whether there's theological substance to it or not. Interestingly, Jesus said, narrow is the path and difficult is the way that leads to life. And so if the life of the, a disciple, if the life of a true Christ follower, which is what I want to be and which I pray that you want to be, if that life is on a narrow road, if that path is difficult and faced with challenges, anybody got any challenges right now? If that's a difficult life to walk in, if it's radically different from the world because we're swimming upstream or going against the flow, then we're going to need some guidance. We're going to need some help along the way. And that's where the Word of God and the Spirit of God who leads us into all truth comes in play. It becomes profitable for teaching. 
Teaching means, okay, in this journey, here is the right path. The Bible is teaching us the right path to take in our walk with God. What's the next word there? Rebuking. Can we just stop with teaching, Pastor Robbie? I don't like the rebuking part. Rebuking is when it says you're on the wrong path. Teaching, here is the right path to take in this walk with God. Rebuking, hey, you've gotten off the path. This is the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. We don't want to hear that. This room is probably full of men who never wanted to stop and ask for directions, right? We didn't trust our wife when she told us to. And then we got an app on our phone. And we'll listen to another woman's voice tell us where to go. Right? We don't like rebuke. We don't like somebody saying you're going the wrong way. Correcting is the next statement. So it doesn't only say you're on the wrong path. It says here's the right path, here's the wrong path. Correcting, here's how to get off the wrong path and back on the right path. And training in righteousness. How do I stay on the right path? How do I keep veering off course and stay in harmony and in step with God? The Word of God is profitable for all of those things. And that's why we need a steady diet of it, not just from a pulpit, but in your daily life. You need to be a student of this roadmap for life to take you down this difficult path that Jesus called a narrow road that few find. He says in verse 17, thoroughly equipped. Man, this is your playbook. And the Holy Spirit is now your coach and your God saying, here's the play and here's how you run it. Now get back in that home. Get back in that relationship. Get back in that workplace. Get back in that school and run the play the way I have designed for you to run the play. Pastors and teachers and friends who are committed to this word become personal trainers and teammates in our lives. And I pray that as a church in the days ahead, and I've talked to a handful of people in our church in places of leadership about that, but in the days ahead that we not only continue to grow in number, reaching the lost and seeing people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that we also grow in our understanding of the Word of God, that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, walking in His Word, training disciples to be serious students of the Word, not just Sunday morning, give me a pep talk, preacher, but I'm a devoted follower day in and day out. Not just a hearer, but a doer. And then the third consideration this morning is because... We make a big deal of of the Bible because of the very direct imperative to the preacher. As Paul is writing this young pastor, this young preacher of the gospel, the letter continues. Again, originally in the original manuscripts, it would have been without numbers. It would have flowed on a scroll like a letter right into before God and Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, this is a big deal to me. And I want you to make a big deal about it. God's going to judge the living and the dead by his appearing. And his kingdom, I solemnly charge you. I think that probably got Timothy's attention. Listen to me. Proclaim the message or preach the word. Persist in it, whether it's convenient or not. 
Listen, there's going to be some things, Timothy, that are easy to preach on. And there's going to be some things that confront the people of God and this world. And you've got to preach them anyway. The goal of the preacher is not popularity, but obedience, faithfulness. He says, persist in it. Rebuke, correct those things he said a moment ago. Take the word of God and do this. Encourage with great patience and teaching. I've even heard of those who are critical of pastors who want their preaching to contain an element of preaching. But the very Bible that tells me to preach the word says my preaching should be explaining why we believe what we believe and here's how to live it out. Teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. People don't want to know theology. They don't want to know the nature and the character of God that leads us to the call that we have on our lives to live in harmony with God. But according to their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves. Why? Because they still want to feel godly. They still want to feel spiritual. They still want to have that pat on the back after a Sunday morning go to church moment. So they will accumulate for themselves teachers because they have an itch to hear something new or, as some translations point out, to to scratch their itching ears, to kind of tell them what they want to hear to make them feel good about themselves. Listen, I want to be very clear. The Bible, the Word of God, the Gospel is good news. But the reason it's good news is because there's so many bad news pieces that we need to understand. Some areas in our life that need to be adjusted. Areas from which we need to repent and turn to Him. And so we can't water down the truth or just try to make everybody happy. He says, I want you to not allow them to turn away. I want you to keep a clear head about everything. Timothy says, know this stuff. It's the Word. It's it's directly related to the Gospel, but it it includes everything that's in God's inspired, infallible Word. In in chapter 2 and verse 15, he said, Timothy, I want you to study it. Work hard at it. Be diligent. Give your time and energy toward this. And I'm so grateful to serve as pastor at a church that values my time in the Word so that I can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's saying, Timothy, know the playbook. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and verse 17 remind us to remember that we should have confidence in our leaders who preach and teach this book, whose lives follow. If they're preaching and teaching the Bible and they're trying to actually live it out, he says, put your confidence, put your trust, get behind those leaders, get behind those pastors, but make sure they're striving to preach the Bible. As one of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Adrian Rogers, would say, if you're in a church where they neglect this word or they don't believe it as the infallible, inerrant word of God, he would say, saturate that place with your absence. Be under the word of God. Make it imperative in your life. If you were to go to a doctor and the doctor were to have some bad news, good news, If he were to say some bad news, here's the disease that you're battling. Here's what has attacked your body. But the good news is 
There is a cure for that. Wouldn't you want to listen to that doctor? You wouldn't want him to lie to you. Now, doctor, don't lie to me. Don't tell me I'm okay if I'm not okay. And don't hold anything back. If there's something that can help me in this condition, let me know what it is. That's the way we should be with the Word of God and with the preacher of the gospel that we would say, listen, don't hold anything. If the Bible says, if it diagnoses something in my life that's not right, tell me what it is. But if it also has the answers, if it has the grace of God and forgiveness and restoration and correction and how to get back on the right path, then tell me that too because I want to know what's wrong, but I want to know how to be right. The hireling preacher will ignore it because he's got to please everybody. The liberal preacher will explain it away. The self-promoting preacher will twist it or take it out of context. But Paul told Timothy to study it and to proclaim it as it is. Ephesians 3.8 One of my favorite verses in the Bible since my calling to me who am less than the least of all the saints this grace was given that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ church I want to tell you I love you I am not perfect I haven't arrived so many areas when I opened this book God reminds me You haven't arrived, but I want you to press on toward the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And because I'm committed to be faithful to him, and because I have a love for Christ and you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to tell it like it is. I want to preach the word as it is. That gives me great joy. But what gives me greater joy than that is when you say, Pastor, I appreciate what you do for us, but that's not enough to feed me. I've got to dig in every day on my own, too. I've got to study it. I've got to highlight it. I've got to write in my journal. I've got to take this book seriously. And when I'm faced with those other why questions that we're going to get to, I've got to be committed to find out, well, what does the Bible say about this? Because it gives us life, it gives us liberty, it gives us hope, it gives us salvation. It gives us the greatest news in the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?